1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Blood. It's more than a thing and more than a metaphor. It's an effective concept, an element, with which and through which Christianity becomes what it is. Western Christianity, if there is such a thing as Christianity singular, embodies a deep hemophilia, a love of blood, even a hematology, a theology of blood. that divides Christianity from itself theology from medicine, finance from politics, religion from race, among innumerable other permutations. This is the claim of Gil Anajar's recent book, aptly titled Blood, A Critique of Christianity. It is a wide-ranging, challenging book, at times searing and at times poetic. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. Anajar. Welcome, Professor Anajar.
0: Hi, Harry. Thank you for having me on on this (laughs) forum.
1: Thank you for being here. So I want to begin our discussion by way of asking you a bit about yourself, as we often do on NBIR. What drew you to study religion?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I find myself uh, 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 thinking that I... I have changed very little since I uh, was uh, uh, even a child. Um, I can't think of a moment when I wasn't concerned with things that I only later realized were called religion. I think I've always tried to figure out what the difference is, in fact, between what I understood to be my religion, something that I never thought of calling my religion. Uh, it was just something I was, whatever uh, I understood at different times by it, um, from other things that appear to bear, or later I learned, uh, were bearing the same name. You know, one of my favorite moments coming to, uh, to the United States was to go to a bookstore and find that religion and philosophy were one and the same thing, you know, in bookstores, religion, philosophy, spirituality. And I, I thought, well, that makes sense, but it also totally doesn't. Uh, um, and so I've been interested in philosophy. I've been interested in, uh, in history. I've, I've had the fortune to have teachers who have, uh, uh been kind of polymath themselves, and, uh, and also interested in, uh, in numerous things of that order and religion for some reason feels like one of those kind of meta category that can bring pretty much anything you want underneath. Um, and it's a, it's a great object to criticize. It's a great object to, uh, uh to think with, as they say. So even though I always feel a little weird saying like, well, yeah, I'm a scholar of religion. But then I feel weird when I say I'm a literary critic. I mean, my PhD is in comparative literature. I certainly feel very strange saying I'm a historian, although I was trained by, by amazing historians. So I'm not, Completely comfortable with any of the uh, uh, of the kind of professional affiliations, but I'm excited by all of them. So uh, uh, you know, in different ways, and uh, sometimes also angry about all of them. But that's you know something else.
1: And I think that that excitement and anger,
0: <laughs> I would I would venture to
1: say, really comes out in this book, as well as as you were just saying, sort of the categories that we might not think of as religious, but that offer something important to think with. Right. Um, So, how did you come to this project then, in
0: particular, Blood? So, uh, two things. Uh, uh, One is that I realized that almost since the beginning of my academic uh, uh, writing uh, career, Christianity has been very, very important, at first as a kind of obstacle uh I started working on medieval Spain and there were all kinds of interferences. I mean historically of course Christianity runs a major interference between Jews and Muslims if you want, uh, uh with the Reconquista, uh, 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 you know the uh reinsertion of Spain into uh, uh into Christian Europe. Uh, at the level of categories, you know, categories that we uh, wield with relative ease, like mysticism or, or philosophy or literature. Uh, and when speaking about the Middle Ages, these were categories that just made no sense, um, uh, as far as I could tell. Um, so at first, it was kind of a weird interference. And then I was also interested in the particularity of the Jewish-Muslim, the Arab-Jewish connection, for which... Uh, at least in recent history, or at least so it seemed at the time, uh, Christianity was also running kind of interferences in the way in which we think, oh, you know, Israel-Palestine, that's such a old enmity, and uh, uh, which Christianity has nothing to do with, presumably, except, of course, that's, you know, easily recognizable as not quite being the case. By the time I I finished my PhD and started working more uh, more directly on Derrida on questions of Jewish Muslim symbiosis or however we want to call it, Christianity really came kind of center stage for for me as a problem, and um, and so by the time Blood appeared, uh, I'll tell you how in a second, um, it became clear that that was going to be a book that was going to be explicitly about Christianity as a question. And I, you know, half-jokingly, that's the way I start the book, I half-jokingly said, you know, we've had Jewish question, the Jewish question, we've had the Muslim question, it's still, you know, ongoing. Uh, we've had the woman question, the Eastern question, but we haven't really had a, a, a Christian question in the sense that, is it time now to finally ask? I mean, of course, as you pointed out, if I say Christianity in the singular, a lot of people are going like, well, what are you talking about? Um, but part of the problem is really, if, even if we're going to say there are many Christianities, we still have to think them under a particular heading, which in itself does not, uh, 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 bears a whole lot of, uh, inquisitions, if I may use the term, uh, or inquiries that we haven't yet conducted, or at least not sufficiently. So to my mind, I'm struck, for example, that the, uh, by the fact that the anthropology of Christianity is a kind of new development. How is that possible? Christianity is not a new development. Uh, of all the anthropological objects, uh, Christianity should not have come so recently. What is Christianity? What do we mean when we say, "Oh, there are many," or "or we," you know, "or it's a religion just like any other"? But blood came, by uh, of course, uh, uh, as pretty much everything I, I have been doing for now, more than twenty years, uh, by Wolf Derrida who was interested in the figure of the Marano, uh, the Marano being the name that was uh, given a kind of uh, a derogatory name that, were, that was given to uh, conversos, to people who had, uh, uh, for the most part, forcefully converted or whose ancestors were said to have converted to Christianity in, again, medieval Spain. And Derrida deploys the figure uh, and does all kinds of interesting things. But as I uh, sat down to actually write something on him and the figure of the Marano, I realized that stuff I had l- learned when I was an undergraduate it, kind of came back, and the question became when Christians decided that uh, some people who were thought to have converted, or who had in fact converted, or whose ancestors had converted, when time came to actually decide that these were not quite good people, right, or not Christian enough, the thing they uh, attached themselves to in order to make that claim was blood. They decided that their blood, those conversos people, was not pure. And that struck me at that moment as a very, very strange idea. I mean, you could make the argument in any number of ways. You could just say, well, look, we don't like them, or they, they were Jews, or they were Muslims, so we just don't want them in. You didn't have to actually engage in a theologically problematic claim, namely that the waters of baptism do not work. Their blood doesn't change. Now, why their blood? Like you could even say, all of them don't change, right? They, as beings, do not change. Baptism doesn't work on them, which would have been theologically strange enough. But why blood? And then suddenly, a kind of incredible window open as to how much blood there is, in fact, around us still. And um, it's the fact that uh, uh, that so much so much blood continues in modernity. Examples like youth sanguinis, the fact that citizenship in so many states is defined in relation to this thing that presumably comes from Roman law, but in fact doesn't. The term does, but not the significance. Uh, things like uh, blood is thicker than water. Things like kinship and consanguinity. You know, uh, blood banks. Yeah, yeah. And um, many, uh, the fact that blood became the, the, the first kind of uh, biological, uh, human biological commodity, so many things where blood seemed so very important today. And when looking at people, uh, uh, people like Michel Foucault, who makes an argument, in fact, for modernity as something that takes its distance from blood, right? Blood be- being signified as an archaic, uh, um, thing, an archaic remnant. It became kind of puzzling because there is a lot of blood. The blood of race uh, is the most obvious, uh, but also the blood of nations, um, I just started becoming very puzzled and, and, and quickly things, um, three concepts kind of, uh, emerged as nation, state, and capital. Um, so nation as a community, state as a set of institutions and capital as the economy. And it turned out that blood was figuring in fact, in a very, very strange manner, in those three terms, again, the nation as the community of blood, the state as a body politic that is very strangely void of blood in most representations uh, that I found, and uh, and money as the blood of the state, Uh, money as that which circulates, uh, um, that which feeds the body politic. And so it became a kind of way of making an argument, because of course, uh, I then went on to try to demonstrate, I think, um, I think I kind of did that, uh, the importance that blood took within the Christian world, obviously because of the blood of Christ, uh, obviously because of the blood of relics, but also because of a kind of synergy of Greek medicine and, uh, debates within the church, uh, the revival of Roman law, all those things kind of came together. And so blood kind of exploded in its, symbolic material philosophical conceptual importance. And um and so I just basically started having fun in trying to follow it. Uh, and, and it took me to places I never thought I would go, like back to ancient Greece and all the way to you know modern America by way of Melville and the One Drop Rule. And all kinds of uh blood quantum, you know, the way Native Americans were uh were and still are categorised in 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 American law. So it just became like a trip, you know, I was uh, um and it also became a way of trying to map out what seemed to me to be a kind of Christian space mm. where the, the the singular importance of blood, which of course is important in every culture, um uh but not in this way. Not, not in everything, not in law, economics, and politics, and, and, uh, and medicine, and philosophy, and literature, everywhere.
1: So I want to ask you more, um, more specifically about those three categories that you were talking about, nation, state, and economy. But first, I think that maybe it would be helpful for listeners who haven't actually read the book yet to, to step back for a moment, and um, maybe you could give us a sense of In the Greek period, as well as in the Hebrew biblical text, which you talk about in the book, that blood actually is not this natural concept, the the way that we might think. So, So you help to denaturalize it. What does it look like in that early period before the concept itself sort of explodes in the Middle Ages?
0: Thank you. I, uh, I'm very grateful for the question because, of course, every time I say, look, there's something peculiar about Christianity's relation to blood, even though we all know about the importance of the blood of Christ, right? Even in, and I want to say almost, especially now in Protestant uh, theology, evangelical, etc. cetera, uh, uh, the, the question is invariably, yes, but I mean, all cultures uh, care about blood. I mean, look at the Aztecs and blood sacrifices and, and look at the Bible. And the thing is that um, I tried, in fact, to stay away from, uh, for the most part, from sacrifice, menstruation, and murder. Uh, because the association between those three themes, let's say, and blood is quasi-universal. Uh, I mean, often it involves blood specifically. Not every sacrifice is bloody, but uh, uh, the association between blood and sacrifice is fairly strong, Menstruation and blood, obviously, even though that's that too, cross-culturally, it's a complicated issue. And then murder. Obviously, not every murder is bloody, but uh, we understand the, the connection. And then there's the more general uh, uh, issue of how the body and body elements provide uh, uh, a resource for thinking. Again, cross-culturally. But I wanted to look at what was more specific. Now, when you look at the Hebrews, at the ancient Hebrews and at the Greeks, you find, of course, murder menstruation, and uh, um, uh, uh, and sacrifice, uh, and blood is fairly important. Now, what it has been interesting is to realize that although the Bible is in fact much more minimalist than we think when it comes to blood, in other words, blood is much more contained, um, the amount of work of scholarship for the past two centuries that deal with blood in ancient uh, uh, Israelite religion is staggering. The amount of work on the Greeks and blood is for some reason not as much. Now, anybody who has read the Iliad, um, or the Odyssey for that matter is aware of the fact that blood is a pretty important figure, right? So it's not like there's much doubt, but of course we're dealing with war and then we're dealing with, we're dealing with strange things like Odysseus going down to Hades and having to feed uh, uh, blood to the dead so that they can uh, be somehow revived and actually interact with them. So there's a nice, like, vampiric uh, moment. So there are uh, all kinds of weird things. And in fact, the Greeks, uh, um, uh, ancient Greek philosophers, for example, and I call them philosophers because that's what they were, but they were also, of course, physicians at the very same time for most of them, uh, uh, and natural scientists and geographers and whatever uh, else um actually thought of blood as quite important uh, um, you know you have those uh, amazing statements from pre-socratic philosophers everything is water or everything is air and i even found one who said more or less everything uh is is uh, blood but that is not so very frequent um and still there is a kind of intense reflection on blood and of course tragedies oedipus uh is is an obvious place to uh, to look and yet, even though there is a lot of blood, at no point does it become so very extensive as to, for example, be equated with identity, with citizenship, with the economy, uh, whatever that might have been at the time, yes, uh, um, and um, and even in the case of embryology, where only Aristotle, in fact, appears to have been hematocentric uh, in, in claiming or in seeming to claim that what is passed on from the parent to the child is blood. With Aristotle, uh, who was, of course, completely uh, phallocentric and only thought that the father was a parent, even in this case, the the, the transmission of some kind of essence from the father, who is the real parent, to the child actually does not happen through blood. So that things that we attribute to the Greeks, uh, like flesh and blood, uh, or to the Hebrews like flesh and blood, like, sorry, to the Greeks like, uh, uh consanguinity and kinship or to the Hebrews, like the notion of flesh and blood happen to not be there at all. The Hebrew Bible never mentions the phrase flesh and blood. It's flesh and bone, as we know. Um, uh, um, now you could say, well, that doesn't make that much of a difference, but bone has never, uh, become so very important. The flesh, it's more complicated, but again, that's an issue, you know, here's my flesh, here's my blood. That's something that becomes very, very important later with Christ and with interpretation of the New Testament, which is when the Eucharist kind of comes in, when questions of the relics come in. So, um, so that even with the ancient Hebrews, even with the ancient Greeks, blood, as important as it undeniably is, never, uh, pervades everything. Um, and that, that's the major difference that I see between Christianity and pretty much uh, uh, everything else. Now, that's not quite a, a definition of Christianity, but it is a way of trying to kind of get uh, a hold on on its uh, expanse, if you want.
1: As you said before, I and mean, something that's so important is that these concepts of, for example, flesh and bone rather than flesh and blood are concepts about relatedness, about... About kinship, that blood becomes this understanding about kinship in the Middle Ages that doesn't exist earlier, um, or at least certainly anyway, not to the same degree. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely.
0: And it also, it also acquires a temporality that is very different. Blood becomes almost eternal, right? You can trace your bloodline until the beginning of time. In, in the Bible, flesh and bone is extremely confined to, in fact, to three generations. After that, it, it becomes some, something else. You do not trace your flesh and bone more than three generations back. That just doesn't happen. Um, and so blood acquires also this kind of pecul- peculiar kind of almost eternity, uh, um, which, again, I think is very much connected to, uh, to, to Christ and the way he is understood uh, uh, much later than in a New Testament, obviously.
1: So this really brings us up to the Middle Ages, right? To that period where Christ's blood and where the the concept of pure blood, as you were talking about before, right? Sangre, limpieza in Spain, um, mm-hmm. becomes so important. And you also mentioned in the book, which I thought was just fascinating, the importance of William Harvey's discovery of circulation of blood, which becomes this sort of controlling metaphor for how lots of different processes in society, as well as kinship, is thought of. So in that period, then, what you say is so important is not just the idea of blood, although that's important, but the idea of different bloods. You touched on this before, but but I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about this moment in the Middle Ages, when people start thinking about different bloods. How does that come about? What does it look like?
0: So the the narrative that has been more or less uh, accepted, which is the one I kind of uh, uh, had to confront very early on, which really brought me to this whole project, was the notion that there's something kind of special, something kind of crazy about medieval Spaniards. Because they had this crazy idea that Jews uh, had impure blood. Jews and and, or ex-Jews or alleged ex-Jews and Muslims, um, uh, um, uh, had a different blood. Um, and you know, this kind of expands into all kinds of crazy things like, oh, well, the Spaniards, you know, they like to kill bulls and, uh, and they had this crazy empire, which presumably, uh, uh over against the Protestant empires, like the Dutch, the, uh, uh, the British, the, uh, German, the American, uh, they were, these were the kind empires as opposed to the Catholic empires that were really, really bloody, I, I love that one because it's uh, it's so ludicrous that you don't even know from where you should actually be looking at it. But uh, um, but the fact is that there is this thing that you know Catholics, uh, um, Spaniards are particularly obsessed with blood, um, and so they came up with this crazy idea in the Middle Ages, which may or may not be the origin of modern racism. Um, but that's the extent of the discussion. And I really wanted to uh <laughs> I have a friend who jokingly uh, uh said that I was uh, an apologist for the Inquisition, because I I tried to de-exceptionalize the Inquisition, uh um which doesn't mean to exonerate it, um, but does mean that there wasn't something so very peculiar about the Spaniards in in making this argument about the limpieza de sangre. But really what had happened is that Christians in the Middle Ages, with the dissemination of uh, uh of the Eucharist, as as a sacrament, which is, you know, 13th century, um, Mm. there was, you know, something that I think should probably be called the disciplinary revolution, whereby Christians, by ingesting the blood of Christ, started thinking of their own blood as different. And I think this is really the key, that the moment you ingest the blood of Christ in the form of wine, which is also a kind of intoxicant, so it's a physical... Uh, feeling that one acquires once a week, once a month, once a year. It doesn't really matter how often they actually did it or how rarely. The fact is that there was something that was particularly loaded about this practice, which led Christians Mm -hmm. to to think of themselves as having a different blood. Now, what's interesting is that historians and anthropologists already have argued that it's with the beginning of the Eucharist that uh, accusations of blood libel, namely that Jews, for the most part, were interested in the blood of Christians uh, emerges at that moment. So that's almost uh, kind of, it's not old knowledge, but it's knowledge that has been around for a few decades at least. And and of course it makes sense. If you drink the blood of Christ, you have a special blood, and those who do not have it might want it. It's the best blood in the world, right? Uh, um, and, and that blood libel, for those of our listeners oh, who are sorry, not familiar libel, with it. Blood libel is the accusation of Jews uh, uh that once a year at least for Passover in order to make the matzah, the the the, the leaven the unleavened bread uh that Jews eat uh, uh at Passover, um was made with the blood of a Christian child, uh who was kidnapped and bled to death. Uh um and so those accusations, of course, of which they were uh, hundreds and hundreds over the course of centuries, um, were often the opportunity, an, an, an opportunity to go and, and, and massacre Jews under these accusations. Um, and there's all kinds of interesting things that happened around that. I mean, interesting and dreadful, of course, but, uh, um, including, uh, uh, until very recently in, in the scholarly world. Um, the point though is that, um, what I, uh, uh the argument I ended up making is that in the Middle Ages, Through a combination of uh, different things, but primarily, of course, with the consumption of the Eucharist, um, Christians started thinking that their own blood was different. And so all kinds of kind of symptomatic uh, um, uh, consequences uh, followed. And one of them was, well, if we have special blood, then they must have non-special blood. Now, in the history of racism, something has not actually registered enough, namely that Jesus, as a as a figure, as a theological figure, is really the first human being to be granted the notion of having a pure blood. And since his lineage is also at stake, and since his blood is being disseminated in all kinds of ways in the Middle Ages, including by consumption, but also by flowing out of relics, um, something very different happens then where not only do we have a special blood, but we also have a pure blood. And so others must have impure blood. And, and you see that not only in Spain, but you see that in Shakespeare when Shylock is uh, uh, um, forbidden from actually touching the blood that apparently is a different blood, namely Christian blood. And that, I think, is the major invention. It's an invention that St. Paul would have, you know, uh, um, at least rolled his eyes uh, at uh, and probably much more. But uh, but it's something that seems to have happened. And, of course, it creates something which uh, uh, which I think is historically unprecedented, namely the, a, a self-understanding on the part of a community that they are bound to each other by blood and by pure blood. Now, we know that this idea traveled quite far. Um, but the fact that it might find its origin at that particular moment seems to me to require that we um, change what we think of Christianity as not merely a religion, but also as possibly the religion that became a race, the first pure blooded community, um, the first nation, and uh, uh, the first kind of kinship group, which later anthropologists will go on to universalize and, of course, accuse primitive of not being able to transcend uh, conveniently enough. Right. Um, so that was, and so Harvey is a kind of culmination of that process where suddenly he puts the heart, which he discovers is the pump, um, which feeds the entire body, uh, as really the figure of the sovereign, which by the way, at that moment can be decapitated without really losing anything because that's not where it's at. It's in the heart and and then everything circulates it's the origin of all the figures that we are now familiar with of networks right it, it starts with circulation and then it becomes uh uh, uh you know complex uh systems but uh, uh, but circulation as a as a concept in marx and everywhere else really uh in urban studies in uh, uh in 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 economy everywhere uh just completely takes off from that moment and again it requires that we think of Christianity as also being a kind of political economy of its own, which then expands and transforms. Of course,
1: one of the things, and maybe this is what your friend was getting at when he called you an apologist for the Inquisition, was uh, something I just found really interesting: is that you note that I, I in can't other places, to, to, to quote, <laughs> <laughs> yes, is <laughs> on some website, Guillanijar said that he's an apologist for the
0: Inquisition. <laughs> I love that.
1: I see. Oh, I I'm see. sorry. Um, <laughs> You know, something that, that you point out in this book is that whereas other states, I mean, England is probably the one that our listeners are most familiar with, but had already expelled their Jews, in some sense, the thing that is different about Spain is that it came late to the game, that it was actually after Absolutely. this notion of blood had really had enough time to percolate, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, uh, given the tone of the book, a good liquid expression for what was <laughs> happening, but after this notion of... The the coagulate? <laughs> coagulate, <laughs> yes. After this notion of of uh, blood in the Eucharist and Christianity as kinship in some sense mm-hmm. had coagulated sufficiently that this was the moment that then, of course, in Spain, the kind of violence against both Jews and also nobles broke right. out and this concern about purity.
0: Absolutely. And, and what's, uh, uh, what's important is, uh, uh, is not only that Spain, which of course is not Spain, but the kingdom of Castile and Aragon, etc. cetera. Okay. Uh, um, not only does it come late in the game, but it actually comes in a, in a strange way, um, almost soft in the game because England, the, uh, you know, the kingdom of England, the kingdom of France, when they expelled their Jews, they didn't give them a choice. Now you could say, well, what kind of a choice is it? Either convert or leave. I, I grant that it's not exactly great. But uh uh but it is a choice. In other words, this is not your life that we will uh, uh um divest you of. It is uh, um it is your um will re renegotiate your belonging. If you want to belong, you have to become like us. Uh otherwise out. Now it's precisely because of that particular opening that then anxiety percolated, as it were. Uh um and it became a question of loyalty, uh, a question that was formulated in theological terms. Um, but, uh, um, but I do think it's important to remember that at the time it was, uh, uh, it was a kind of, um, um, imagine today uh, Spain being uh, accused of being soft on immigration, right? They were kind of being soft on the Jews because they gave them a, uh, uh, they gave them a choice. They said convert or leave. Um, uh something which by now as we know Europe uh, uh would like yes uh, for uh, for Muslims to either become more like uh Europeans, uh more secular like Europeans, or uh or not be there at all. Uh right. So the discourse is is complicated because it it prefigures all kinds of weird mode weird modes of toleration in fact. Um under of course a uh, uh, a general you know if it's convert or or leave uh, certainly, I would like to have a third option, but at the time, it was still more of an option than other kingdoms had actually uh, given.
1: Moving a bit closer to us in time, and, and you've already mentioned a few different figures uh, as you've been speaking. You mentioned Marx, you mentioned uh, Hobbes, maybe not by name, but but I, I know that you are referring to him. Yes. Um, so how does then this idea of blood how does this flow into notions of statehood, nation, and economy, as as you've been mentioning, but haven't quite explained for us yet?
0: Well, um, so the, the, the first notion that actually carries through a kind of um, originary kinship, which is set up with the Christian people, the, the uh, 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 Populus Christianus, as a community of blood, is that it, it, it ends up being transferred to the nation. Uh, the nation is a nation of blood, and interestingly enough, since you mentioned the, the nobility, what happens in Spain, in a way, is actually, at that level, is, uh, is on the early side, namely that the nobility does not have a, a, a privileged claim to have a special blood. If anything, their blood is tainted, whereas the people's blood is not. Now, one of the uh, material conditions for that is of course that the nobility documents uh, uh its uh, uh lineage whereas the people does not and therefore it's much easier for uh for a peasant to say that they have pure blood that they are of a, of good lineage um because there's very few ways of demonstrating otherwise with the nobility it was very easy to demonstrate that it was otherwise um and therefore there was a kind of uh cutting down to size of the nobility as as a privileged uh group and later on um you could think of it as a kind of democratisation of blood where the nobility which claims to have pure uh, blue blood right which is another form of the uh, of the matter ends up being uh delegitimated and it's the people who inherit um that purity of blood we we the french we the spanish we the british have uh, are a community of blood now of course the figure of the state is that uh, as a political figure as uh, uh, as political philosophers in modern times will go on to attribute to uh, aristotle uh, as well but that's actually a wrong attribution so in modern times politics gets refigured as that which must transcend blood right so on the one hand we are a nation of blood but then it becomes kind of politically incorrect, particularly, of course, in the Republican tradition. Um, and, but the figure of the state, Leviathan, right, of the body politic, uh, re- remains very bodily. Whether it's mechanical or organic is less important than the fact that it is figure as this machine body, uh, uh, of which Hobbes, of course, is the uh, best-known representative. Um, and the place of blood in all this is uh, uh, kind of uh, both essential because it is the multitude, the community, and, uh, um, and on the other hand, marginal, because the, the, the state is apparently free of it. And, and that's the interesting thing, is that it's that freedom from blood which marks the passage from tribal, you know, communal politics to real politics, which is free of, of blood. And as we know, that's not really the way it happened, but as a kind of theoretical discourse, the nation as a community of blood was very important. And of course, it does lead to racism, uh, uh, you know, with all due respect to Benedict Anderson, who claims that there's a fundamental distinction between racism and nationalism. I don't think it's the case. I'm certainly uh, uh, not convinced by the evidence. What uh, um, So that's for nation and state, right? The state it being the, the bloodless representation of a, a, a community that is in itself conceived of as a blood community. Now, Holmes is the one who also makes the articulation to the economy because he's the one who, in fact, being a friend and a student of Harvey deploys uh, uh, the notion of blood as money and commerce. That's circulation. Words, exactly. Uh, and, and invokes circulation uh, and sanguification, which Quentin Skinner taught me uh, uh, about this, uh, is a beautiful word of the English language, which means the reddening of the cheeks. Um, so how does Leviathan show up its health? By being uh, uh, you know, wealthy in commerce and having lots of money circulate. Uh, it's an it's a, it's a amazing image, which, of course, also explains why Marx would then go on to say that capitalism is vampirism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Or as Moses Hess, a few years before Marx actually put it, uh, uh, another early socialist, uh, uh, said in the Middle Ages, they used to drink the blood of Christ, and now they drink the blood of the workers. Um, And so it actually uh, uh, shows, and there are many, many more examples, the way in which blood becomes a kind of um, go-to image, figure, symbol uh, for the economy at large. And it's not determining of of all political economy, of course, but it is pervasive and and fairly ubiquitous. Um and so there you have it, right? Nation, state, capital are concepts for which blood uh, um kind of occupies a, a very important function, and a little too important if it were the case that blood is something that we left behind long ago among those you know primitive tribes. We didn't know any better. Uh, it becomes quite constitutive, in fact, of, of modern times.
1: As listeners have probably already gathered, the role of Jews and Jewishness, I mean, I'm, I'm now riffing off the fact that you just mentioned Marx, that Jews and Jewishness are very prominent throughout the book, really. Were you aware of that focus when you began, or did that sort of develop as you were writing it? Did you think that you could write this book without any
0: any Jewishness in there? That's very interesting. Is it really that, uh, uh, I've never been asked that particular question. Look, I, uh, um, I, I begin as a scholar of, of, of Jews. My training was, you know, in Jewish history and in Jewish philosophy at first. It kind of then expanded in a somehow uncontrollable manner, but, um, uh, there's no question that it, it um, Jewish history, questions of Jewish politics, let's say, and of the Jewish tradition, are absolutely essential to, uh, to my thinking. I didn't realize how ubiquitous uh, I, I had made Jews in, in the book. It is true that I, I realized that when it comes to blood, and particularly to the Limpieza de sangre, to the history of Spain and the Inquisition, the focus has been mostly on the Jews, on the, the victims of the Inquisition. And I very much wanted to... Uh, shift the focus around, which is why, of course, I, again, it's half a play. Uh, I want to, to, I wanted to shift the focus from the Jewish question to the Christian question. And so, of course, Jews kind of, uh, because they've been a constant foil uh, for many of the questions that interest me, I suppose they were unavoidable uh, uh, for me to kind of mention. But I think that the, um, you know, to the extent that I can speak of my intent, um, it was really to kind of show that they're not the center, even though they may have paid a whole lot of the price of those uh, um this is not where uh, my focus actually uh, was. I really wanted to show that it is Christians over the course of the centuries who have changed the way in which they have thought of themselves. And of course, with all kinds of consequences for others, uh, African-Americans, uh, slaves, so that the, the history, of course, is a history uh, uh, of which not entirely, but to a great extent, is a history of prejudice. But I really wanted to, to make it something else than a history of prejudice. I wanted to make it in, into a kind of showing that there's this element with which Christians appear to have thought themselves and made themselves in a way that goes way beyond prejudice uh, and that goes way beyond what we tend to think of as religion but really kind of sets up a field that involves religion and politics and science and, 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 and race and economy and, uh, and law. Um, so really quite a, 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 a wide array of things that we tend to think of today as distinct, if not utterly separate, um, but at least distinct. And I wanted to show that their uh, indistinction is, is still actually uh, uh, with us. Two of the figures who
1: you focus on, Marx and Freud, will be well known to all of our listeners, I'm sure. And as you mentioned in the book, are often studied either as Jews or as sort of self-hating Jews, we might right. say. So. How do you view them
0: here? How, how do how do their how does their work influence? You know, at some point, I couldn't help. It's it, it's somewhere between uh, the uh, the the passion, um, what I hope is a sense of humor, and uh, and the anger. Um, I had to quit that. If someone uh, today uh, says, "Well, you know, Marx, Spinoza, Marx, Heine, and and Freud, these were Jews," and that's perfectly okay uh even though one was excommunicated uh the other uh, uh, um you know converted uh, uh uh another his father converted so his relationship to judaism uh, i'm talking about marx uh, uh is uh, uh somehow questionable and then there's freud whose relationship to jewishness was somehow tenuous now of course it depends what you uh, uh what you call jewishness and and of course the last intent I have here is to adjudicate on who and who is and is not a Jew but I'm fascinated that it's perfectly okay to 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 refer to these great figures Spinoza Marx Freud uh, as Jews but if you say Hobbes Locke Hume uh, um, Heidegger were Christians, not to mention Nietzsche, then you're kind of borderline lunatic like oh well what I mean what are you saying here and i, I I'm just curious because the connection between Hobbes and Christianity seems to me much, much stronger than the connection between Marx and Jewishness by any standard and by any definition one might want of either Christianness and Jewishness. So that was the first thing, right? It, again, it, it was a way of turning kind of the, the mirror, like let's not focus so much on the Jews and kind of ask, yes, but what is a Christian and who is one? Um, but when it came to uh, uh, to Freud in particular, I really just became uh, uh, fascinated by the fact that um, he tells this amazing story in Moses and Monotheism, whereby the founder of a religion does not belong to the religion, right? Comes to it as an outsider. He's the founder of that religion, and he is murdered. And for some reason, I thought, I think I heard that story somewhere else, um, and, of course, I'm referring to Jesus, right? The founder of a new religion does not belong to that religion. Jesus was not a Christian, yes. Jesus was a Jew who founded Christianity. We won't quibble as to how and whether that's the case, but that's certainly the image, right? A founding figure. Um, and that founding figure is killed. And I was shocked to find that I think there's like one and a half scholars who have pointed to the fact that there's a strange similarity between what Freud does to Moses and what actually the story of Jesus is. And so the Christianity, the Christianness of Moses and monotheism seemed to me so blatant that the fact that it hasn't occasioned as many, you know, volumes upon volumes of the Jewishness of that book, Moses and monotheism, or the Jewishness of Freud, just became kind of almost like a joke. It's like, oh, I see, we're going to... Pounce on the Jewishness of Freud, but we're not even going to consider his Christianness. Uh, um, and so it became uh, uh, like I, I, at that point the last chapter of the book, which is uh, 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 which is called Jesus and Monotheism, uh, and not Moses and Monotheism, is actually trying to read the, the the very ambivalent, let's say, ways in which Freud relates to Jesus uh, um, and to Christianity, in fact. Um, and it became also much more important than the way in which he deals with anti-Semitism, which is the place where scholars have paid attention to, the inter- to, to Christianity. Uh, and where ostensibly, that's where Freud brings it in. But of course, my argument is that the whole book is kind of steeped into a particular understanding of Christianity. One could even argue a very sharp critique of Christianity, at the same time as it is also an, uh, an extraordinary adoption of the Christian narrative right? Because the notion that the community is founded by whoever murder, and the murder of a father at that, right? Which is then redeemed by the alleged end of that narrative with Jesus who is the son who sacrifices himself, right? Uh, Or rather the father who sacrifices his son and as such redeems himself and etc. The whole narrative actually begins and Freud says it explicitly with the Christian notion that the community is founded by over murder. I mean, Cain kills Abel, and no community is founded, and that's the first murder. Oedipus kills his father, and no community is founded. In fact, the community is undone. And yet Freud sticks to the notion, intotamentable, that the murder of the father is foundational. When his own knowledge of the sources could have said, well, how about the murder of the brother? How about the murder of the son? Right, Isaac, uh, uh, or for that matter, Oedipus. Right, who first is the victim of an attempted murder by his father. Um, so there's, I mean, if you want to say murder is foundational, fine. But then why, why only the father? Um, and of course, it only makes sense if you have the Christian narrative in mind, whereby the murder of the father is redeemed by the sacrifice of the son.
1: Right, and that that. And so the whole thing unique.
0: becomes a, a loop. Right. Exactly uh um and so moses and monotheism is really both a kind of confirmation of that as well as a critique of that narrative and uh, uh and it strikes me as a as a kind of unavoidable reading of that uh, of that book which also means of course paying more attention to the christianness of freud not so much just as an author but as this kind of phantasmatic figure onto whom all kinds of modes of jewishness in all kinds of very interesting ways uh, are projected while not recognizing that we still have some thinking to do about Christianity, um, which I think we we're not doing enough. We we're, we're still thinking with the Jews. Most of my teachers do and have, but I think there's uh, uh, and I respect them for that, and I've learned you know what I could from them. But I think that there's more to say about uh, about Christianity, and and I think Freud is uh, uh, is a is a big. Um, a great opportunity for that. And so is Marx of course. Moving on to another really
1: in-depth reading that you do in this book of uh, another classic piece, in in this case of literature. So we talked about Hobbes' Leviathan, but we also have Melville, who who appears here and who you do a great reading of Moby Dick. And and it's interesting because, as you said, I mean, this project really took you to places where maybe you weren't expecting at first. I mean, here we have uh, quite recent American, um, recent in the grand scheme of things anyway, American literature. Tell us a bit about your reading of Melville. What did you find there?
0: The moment I started thinking about Leviathan and the body politic, uh, uh, a friend of mine was really a wonderful scholar who works in, uh, in France uh, uh, and whose work uh, has been uh, translated not completely. Uh, one, one of whose books I translated myself, Peter Sandi, uh, who's a, a philosopher, uh, literary critic, musicologist, basically told me, look, you, you you've got to read Moby Dick. Now he wasn't the first person who told me to do so, but when I read his book, um uh, I recognized that I needed to read Moby Dick, uh because the, the conversation between Hobbes and Melville, uh, which for the most part has not been quite taken up, at least not as much as you would have thought, since the word leviathan is all over the book, all over Moby Dick. Um mm-hmm. and and this within political philosophy is mostly because apparently America is a Lockean. Uh, country, not a Hobbesian one, which is something that doesn 't cease amazing me uh, um, given you know the permanent state of war that this country has been in for most of its history, but leaving that aside, um, mm-hmm. I recognized that I wanted to translate uh, uh, sandy 's uh, book, and I knew of course i couldn 't do it without reading Moby Dick, so I did, and I was completely, uh, uh, blown away. I mean, first it, it's really, it's a magnificent text. It's, uh, uh it's, it's biblical, it's Shakespearean, uh, uh, in proportion. And, uh, um, and it's really encyclopedic as of course, uh, uh, every c- critic has mentioned. And what interests me is both the national and international dimension of, uh, of the book. But then of course, once I started reading it is to notice how much blood there is, uh, in it there's been people who've been doing all kinds of interesting work on, on anatomy and uh, political anatomy in, in Melville on race in Melville, on economics in Melville. Um, but the way in which all those are actually tied together, um, ended up being blood, blood ties race and economy and industry and politics and international law and, uh, uh, uh and, uh, and community and what have you, right. In, in, in nomine Diaboli*. Uh, um, um, Right when Ahab has the harpooners uh, kind of swear uh, their their oath um, uh, they they all dip their harpoons in blood right and so it 's in the name of the devil, which of course recalls uh, 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 in the name of god um, but um, so once the blood kind of jumped at me from uh, from the book, it became uh, imperative to uh, uh, to to write on it and it it, it was really. Uh, amazing to realize, for example, that uh, uh, Ishmael goes to see, among other reasons, to improve <laughs> his circulation, right? And to see how much concern there is for the blood. Like the it's, uh, 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 the, the well catchers um, for Melville are the original figure of blood for oil, right? No blood for oil. And Melville actually writes, I mean, it, it's Ishmael speaking at this point, who basically says, every time you turn on your lamp, which is of course uh, uh, lit with whale oil. Um, Every time you turn on your lamp, remember this, the blood of of basically a fisherman is in there, right? So that the notion that the blood of the, the the blood of the whale is, is the oil of the lamp and that the oil of the lamp is the blood of the workers uh, is, is also uh, there. And, um, and, and, and there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, of uh, um, illustrations um, uh, of of the sort in Melville. And so I actually thought that he was summarizing. Uh, I mean, in uh, I, I can't decide whether it's megalomanic or humble on my part to, to 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 say that I think Moby Dick is the original critic of Christianity. Right? It's the book that puts blood at the center of the history of Christianity in all of its dimensions. And, um, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, kind of, a, again, another trip to, to go down this incredible book and, um, and just learn so much from it.
1: You talk about so many other thinkers, theologians, writers. I mean, just for our audience members who haven't read the book, we've got Pope Urban II, Hobbes, as we mentioned, Spinoza, who you mentioned, Shakespeare, who got a, a quick shout out in our conversation. And that's it. Benjamin as well. Who did you? I'm really putting you on the spot here. But who did you find um, most compelling, or perhaps surprising, as you were working on this book? Whose voice echoes for you?
0: Mm. Of all these writers, I mean, I think I, I, I'd have to say uh, um, Melville. Melville was the one who really. Uh, um, I, I just didn't expect to see so much. And when I started looking at the, uh, at the literature on, uh, on Melville, I was surprised by, uh, by, the, by this kind of discrepancy between the uh, ubiquity of blood in the book and the, um, and its uh, almost complete absence. Um, there's a, in fact a kind of naturalness uh, to it. Um, and saying that, actually, I would say that probably the, the number two, um, is, um, is someone who doesn't figure much in the book, but, but remains for me very enigmatic. And it's this great um, linguist, Emile Benveniste, um, uh, a French, among others, uh, among other things, a French linguist uh, whom Derrida quotes quite a bit, who really went over the lexicon of kinship um, um, in Greek, Latin, and pretty much all the Indo uh, European languages and who um, never took blood as a technical term. In other words, he explored the entire lexicon of kinship in all of its complexity, which is immense, Um, and yet he never took blood as a term to be interrogated. And that, to me, is absolutely fascinating. Um, um, And then, of course, the last is some kind of combination between Benjamin and Derrida, which is, the the, uh, uh, in a way, the opening chapter, um, Mm. which I by no means claim to have resolved, but I think the centrality of the figure of blood in Benjamin's writing and in the way Derrida picks it up, um, Mm. to me, uh, uh, kind of crystallizes how enigmatic ultimately, right? Because we tend to think, well, blood, of course, I mean, who would not be concerned with blood? Uh, Who would not use blood as a symbol? Who would not be concerned about blood spilling? But the level which it has reached, right? And something I didn't mention now in our conversation was that uh, a big preoccupation was the way in which we think or don't think of the relation between blood and politics. I mean, I mentioned it a little bit, uh, when, when speaking about the fact that politics is what we think of as emancipating itself from blood. And that the moment we think of politics and blood together, we immediately have the kind of Nazi associations. But blood and politics in this country, in, in the United States, is massive. The one drop rule is, although its strictly legal history is not very long, its uh, effective history is much longer. The fact that you could be deemed... Uh, a, a black man, a black person, by virtue of some claim that you had any amount, amount, unverifiable, by the way, since there was no way of measuring, uh, of, of black blood, so-called, um, has a long, long history uh, in, in this country, and it, it is the, the political history of this country. So the fact that we separate blood and politics, even when it is completely blatant, uh, um seems to me to really come and, and be fully crystallized in in the kind of this encounter between Derrida and Benjamin over a reading of this short and enigmatic text that Benjamin wrote, where blood has a, a kind of disproportionate role, really, but also disproportionately enigmatic. And Derrida picks it up, doesn't really resolve the enigma. In fact I would say he intensifies it. Um, and so that was that was also very uh, important to me. But I'd have to put Melville first.
1: Not in preparation for our
0: talk, but just recently,
1: I picked up some of the work of anthropologist Circe Sturm, who works on Aboriginal people in the United States, and these questions about law and blood, and the way that that works in terms of both cultural identification, but also legal codes and treaties Absolutely. and all these kinds of things. And so uh, beyond African Americans, although it's a great example, the one drop rule, but certainly, as you mentioned, really briefly in passing earlier in our conversation for any of our listeners who want to get more of a sense of how blood plays out in politics in the United States, thinking about how uh, we define things like being an Algonquin or being a Cherokee. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, this is a great example of what you've been talking about in terms of that, that, the messiness with which, with which blood uh, still infuses there. There's another uh, (laughs) liquid metaphor, but you know, still infuses our, our sense of a body politic as well as a nation. Absolutely. So you begin the book by talking about the scraps and then mounds of paper, um, that you had gathered over time, which had then seemed to call forth this book in some sense, (laughs) almost despite yourself, which I, which I just, I just loved reading that because it, of course, made me feel very self-righteous about the fact that my desk is a mess. Um, (laughs) it's just a book that's being called into being clearly. Uh, so, are you building up uh, new mounds of paper? Anything else in the works that 's being
0: done I I, I I am actually uh, um, uh, for reasons that are uh, i think uh, obvious uh, uh, there 's more and more of us who are worried about the um, <laughs> the incessant and uh, uh, exponentially growing expansion of weapons and i 'm um, not sure exactly where this is going to go, but uh, um, but I've be, began reading there's some wonderful, uh, wonderful, and also terrifying work that has been done recently on, on drones. And I, I suppose I'm always interested in, you know, political questions uh, uh, of one form or another. And George Orwell uh, somewhere actually asked, "Is there such a thing as a democratic weapon?" And he actually answers in the positive, but he also says, "But of course, there are much more tyrannical weapons." And, and for him, a tyrannical weapon is a weapon that doesn't really, that is either too complicated or too expensive to be, uh, 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 wielded by the masses. Um, and so I think Orwell would agree that we live in a, in a, in, in an age of absolutely tyrannical weapons, weapons that have no, uh, uh that one cannot protect oneself from. Um, and, you know, so I'm reading Mike Davis on the on the history of the car bomb, uh uh who actually makes a powerful argument for the fact that they might be uh, uh responses to the most horrifying and tyrannical weapons, uh, but of course still uh and and perhaps equally tyrannical, right? So Orwell would have to be interrogated uh, uh under this. But anyway, the general question is um, you know, how do we think together weapons and and, and politics? And does it make sense? I mean, the fact that Orwell ask the question of democratic weapons um, doesn't mean that he's correct. Maybe there is no possibility and maybe all weapons are tyrannical, in which case I think we should think of our own political beliefs, our own political convictions, uh, particularly our democratic convictions. Uh, perhaps we should think about weapons a little more. Uh, and I'm not suggesting, of course, that we don't or that many people haven't. Um, but I'm... I'm, I'm looking for a way of perhaps uh, um, exploring this uh, uh, um, in, in whatever fashion. So, um, so that's, uh, uh, it's been, I've been accumulating lots of scraps of papers and, and, and bounded ones as well.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm sure that everyone will continue to follow your work and they should pick up, of course, the A Critique of Christianity, which just came out recently. So thank you so much, Professor. Thank you very much
0: for your great questions.